Katie Callahan is our guest on Joys of Binge Reading today, the 200th episode of the show, which we started four years ago with the goal simply to reach 50 episodes. I'm delighted to share it with an author who's devoted the last seven years of her life to researching the remarkable relationship between C.S. Lewis and his American wife, Joy Davidman. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler. And Patty has produced two best-selling books from this work she's carried out so lovingly. The first, Becoming Mrs. Lewis, tells the story of the precious years of love and marriage the two authors shared before they were separated by Joy's early death. The second, Once Upon a Wardrobe, just published, delves into the inspiration behind the magical Narnia children's series. I couldn't think of a more uplifting story to feature on our 200th episode or a better Christmas book to talk about. If you're anything like me, you'll find that Once Upon a Wardrobe makes you laugh and cry, sometimes even at the same time. And the other thing Patty covers in this 200th episode is telling us how the American divorcee won the heart of a confirmed Christian bachelor and how she came to the inspiration to frame her Narnia story through the eyes of a very ill eight-year-old boy. We've got three ebook copies of Once Upon a Wardrobe to give away to three lucky readers. Enter the draw on our website or on the Binge Reading Facebook page. And if you want to hear Patty tell us what she dreamed of being when she was a little girl, that's in the Getting to Know You Five Quickfire Questions. Become a binge reading on Patreon supporter, help support the show, and as well, you'll get some really fun bonus content. But now, here's Patty. Hello there, Patty, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Jenny, thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored, especially for your 200th episode. Congratulations. Thank you, thank you. Look, we've got two wonderful books to talk about with you today, both relating to the life of the Christian apologist and children's author, C.S. Lewis. Your very latest book, Once Upon a Wardrobe, is a fictional exploration of the inspiration behind the Narnia series, which I'm sure are known all over the world. And the previous one, published a couple of years ago now, Becoming Mrs. Lewis, about the romance that C.S. Lewis had with American author Joy Davidson that resulted in his one and only marriage. Now, you've spent about six years of your life overall devoted to researching Lewis's life for these two books. Give us a parachute overview of what those last years have been like for you. Oh, diving into the work of C.S. Lewis, whether it's just his life or his writing, it can't help but shift the way you see the world. But I didn't dive in for that reason. When I first started my research, like you said, probably six or seven years ago. It was because I was fascinated by his wife, Joy Davidman, and the poet and writer and author that she was in this 
very improbable relationship that started all because of a letter. And yet, once I was in that world, it just ended up becoming, in many ways, an endless fascination with not only his work, but the origin of some of his stories, especially Narnia. So yeah, you're right. This parachute that kind of dropped me into his life was Joy Davidman. And yet so many stories have risen out of that. She was a polarizing character, wasn't she? Even today, some people are inspired by her and others are quite uh, disapproving of her. Can you tell us a little bit about that polarization? Absolutely. And I agree. I think that is part of what interested me in her was that I kept hearing either one, the two views of her were so polarized. There were those who were fascinated that she was the only woman Lewis ever loved, that she was a woman who swooped into his life and completely changed the last decade of his work. And then there were others who believed that she was a, you know, not fit for him and were polarized and disapproving of her. And I'd had a hard time reconciling these two different stories of this one woman. And so what I did was that I dove into that story, those polarized views in a different way, her point of view. It was in her poetry, her letters, her essays, her fiction, her nonfiction. I looked at it from what she had to say about it. And Yes, she is fiery and she is complicated and she made decisions you and I probably wouldn't make. And yet she was the woman who wrote C.S. Lewis a letter became and changed the last decade of his life. It is his words to her were the happiest years of his life. So who are we to judge or become polarized about what we believe about her when that is what he has to say about her. He says that she was iron on iron for him, that she was the smartest person he'd ever met and that he loved her. When he wrote the book, A Grief Observed, about the great grief he had when she passed away. Yes, one of the reasons that people disapproved, obviously, were because she had been married before. She was a divorcee, and this was the world still where Princess Margaret wasn't allowed to even have a relationship with Peter Townsend. So it was a different era, wasn't it? Yes, and I address some of that in Becoming Mrs. Lewis, where even she acknowledges from the church to society to family, she was. She shows up in England as a divorcee with two children. And Princess Margaret is exiled because and unallowed to wear, marry Peter Townsend. The king had abdicated because he was in love with a divorced woman. And so there is this societal and religious belief that, and it was part of Lewis's resistance to falling in love. You know, as we well know, he did not admit he was in love, nor did he tell her he was in love until he knew she was dying. And he tried to get special permission from the church to marry her. And yet it wasn't until she was on her deathbed that he was able to do so. And his friends were opposed. For example, J.R.R. Tolkien. He was very opposed as a, a devout Catholic 
that Lewis would be in love with dating or marry a divorced woman with two children. So not only has that carried over into today, but people believe that she showed up from America and swooped into his life. And yet, can't we give Lewis some autonomy and belief that he knew what was best for him? And that judgment has carried over until today. So I wanted to give us a different way to look at it. Yeah. Look, you mentioned about that critical letter that she wrote to him. They were pen pals for three years from different sides of the Atlantic before she even met him. And that letter was related to a religious experience that she'd had. It's rather tantalizing that none of those letters that they wrote to one another as pen pals have remained. They've all been destroyed. And I was just a little bit curious if that was just the normal thing that happens with Flotsam and Jetsam Alive or whether someone deliberately destroyed them. That is the big question, Jenny. Everybody has different opinions about this. I understand Lewis's letters being gone, the ones that she wrote to him. Because Lewis destroyed every letter that was sent to him. He didn't believe in saving the letters after he answered them for a lot of reasons. And one of them was that he received such a volume of mail that there was nowhere to store or keep the letters he received. But also out of privacy, he never wanted the letters, the very personal letters that people wrote to him to ever become published. So he destroyed letters and instructed even that when he passed, that his letters and journals be destroyed. And they were, you know, warning his brother, put them all on a fire when he passed away. And it is one man named Walter Hooper who saved some of what was to be put in that fire. And yet, why were the letters Lewis wrote to Joy lost? Because I can't imagine that Joy ever destroyed a letter that her beloved Jack sent to her. Years of letters and what I would give to read what those letters said. Her son, Douglas, has said that what happened, this is what he told me, is that they were stored in a trunk and that he stored that trunk in a friend's shed or barn and that someone broke into that shed or barn and ransacked that trunk. And the trunk had letters, it had mementos of childhood, and that they are all gone. So Uh that is the story of what happened to her letters. I always have this great hope that someday Douglas will be cleaning out something and find all those letters because... I know Joy would never have thrown them away. It was only 10 years ago that those poems she wrote for C.S. Lewis were found in a box in a small cottage in Oxford, England. And they had been considered gone for years. But 300 unpublished poems, along with a file of poems that were love poems, love sonnets to C.S. Lewis were found. So who knows what letters might ever show up someday. Yes, that was remarkable. And those sonnets are amazing. And One of the things that you do is insert lines from those poetries at the headings of a lot of the chapters, and they really speak to what's going on in her life at the time as well. That's a lovely addition. You mentioned J.R. Tolkien. Just in passing quickly, Did he ever get to accept joy or was that restraint always present? Douglas tells a story that when C.S. Lewis was dying, who was obviously Douglas's stepfather, 
He came out of the hospital one afternoon, Douglas did, and walked into Tolkien, who said, hello, I, you know, I am Ronnie. I hope you remember me. And Douglas, of course, was very much, of course, I remember you, sir. You know, and, and Tolkien said to him, he said, if something happens to Jack, I want you to know that you are welcome to live with me and my family. So in many ways, yes, Tolkien did come to accept that this was a woman Jack loved and married and was willing to bring her son into his home. So I think much has been made of of Tolkien's disapproval, but I do believe that much of that disapproval came from his devout Catholicism and had very little to do with how much he loved Jack and in the end accepted Douglas as as Jack's family. Yes, yes. Look, it's good that we're turning towards Douglas because your most recent book, Once Upon a Wardrobe, is, I think, a remarkable story. Honestly, it had me crying and sort of feeling joyful at the same time, which is a fantastic thing for a writer to do. You tackle the, you tackle the story of how Narnia came to be through the eyes of a very ill little boy. And I wonder, for starters, how did that particular framework come to you? When I was writing Becoming Mrs. Lewis, I saw these breadcrumbs in C.S. Lewis's life that I could see in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And not being a Narnia Chronicles expert, but being a lover of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a book I have read so many times. I have read to my children, watched the movie, and I had never heard anyone talk about these little breadcrumbs of his life in such a beloved story. And I sat with it for a long while, and I wrote a book in between. I had a historical novel out last year. And yet when COVID happened and shutdown happened, I started to toy with the idea that I wanted to show these pieces of his life that I saw in the origins of that story. And I'm always fascinated with the origins of stories. I love mythology. I love origin stories of the world from different mythological perspectives. And I wondered about the origins of Narnia. And I started to write a story about it. And a little boy named George appeared. And he was fascinated with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He wished for the back of his wardrobe to pop out so he could find it. And he asks his sister to ask the author at Oxford in the year of 1950, where this story came from. And I couldn't for a long time figure out how to do that without lecturing you, which goes back to your question of how I decided to tell it the way I told it. And finally, I decided after much messing around that what I would do is have Lewis tell the story to Megs and Megs would tell the story to George. And then we as the reader and me as the writer would see that story through the innocence and liminal space of an eight-year-old's imagination. So that I'm not telling you, and Lewis isn't telling you what happened to him. We are watching it through an eight-year-old's imaginative eyes. Now, if we frame that in the context that when Joy went to England, she wasn't 
specifically chasing down Lewis or anything like that. She just felt a need to go to England, possibly to meet him. But she took her two sons with her and it was kind of like she was starting a new phase of her own life. So she arrived in England with these two young sons when she met Lewis. And one of the things that I wondered was whether your book in some way also reflected what it might have been like for Douglas and David, the other boy, arriving in England and meeting this fellow C.S. Lewis and then him becoming so important in their mother's life. Oh, absolutely, Jenny. And The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe came out in October of 1950, which is 71 years ago around this time. And at that time, that is when the first letter from Joy Davidman arrived to C.S. Lewis. So when Joy showed up with her sons in 1953, the third Narnian Chronicle was already coming out. And in the end, Mr. Lewis dedicated one of the books to Douglas and Davy Gresham. But Douglas tells a story of showing up at Mr. Lewis's house to meet him for the first time with his mother. He was only eight years old which is the age that I have my young boy in my story. And Douglas shows up and he expects a knight to answer a door. He expects a great man who might live in Narnia for how could anything but a great knight or king have created this entire world called Narnia that Douglas says saved him and his imagination when he was a young child living in New York during a very bad time when his father, who was an alcoholic, and his mother were getting divorced. And he opened the door and there stood a man in ratty tweed pants and pushed down slippers and a cigarette and, you know, a, a human. And he tells the story of meeting him and being disappointed. And then within a half an hour, falling in love with this jovial, funny, smart man who created Narnia. And when Douglas told me that story, it very much impacted how I wanted George, my eight-year-old character, to see the author of this story and to see how the very ordinary world of this man could be turned into something extraordinary through the alchemy and the magic of story. That's wonderful. It's true to say that that feeling of a passion for mythology was something that also drew C.S. and Joy together in an extreme way, wasn't it? They had very, very complementary reading habits and tastes, and they could converse as uh, literary critics on an incredibly deep level. Absolutely. They were both such deep thinkers and such extensive readers. They were both sight memorizers, and they could both quote, entire sections of books they had read without looking at the books. And they both loved mythology. And so when the time came that C.S. Lewis said, I feel like I am dry, that I don't have another book in me. And she asked him, well, what is something you love and have never approached? What is a book you've always wanted to write? And he said, I've always wanted to do a retelling of the myth of Cupid and Psyche. And that is the book they wrote together. And it is called Till We Have Faces. So yes, and, and his deep love of mythology shows up in Narnia. Norse mythology, 
creation mythology, all of it shows up in Narnia. In fact, one of Tolkien's insults about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when he first read it is that Lewis used too many different myths in one story. So that love of mythology shows up in even in Narnia. We're taking a short break. We'll be right back. San Francisco, 1870, and Hawaiian sugar merchant Kaleo's life takes a dangerous turn when he rescues a workmate from a random street attack and becomes embroiled in a deadly family conflict. Sarah's been living a double life, but can she trust him enough to tell him the true story of her past and maybe endanger them both? That's the story behind Ancient Deception, the ninth book in my historical mystery series of Gold and Blood. Yes, Jenny Wheeler is a writer as well as a podcaster. If you like charismatic heroes, twisty plots, there's a good chance you'll enjoy Ancient Deception. It's available at all of the usual digital bookstores, Amazon, Kobo, Apple. So try it today and let me know what you think. Fantastic. Look, we talked about Douglas. Um, I want to mention that you've got a, a wonderful series of podcasts on your website for people who are interested in that side of things, Douglas and the story of how it all came to be. And the first two episodes are actually interviews with Douglas, and you've titled them Those Poor Boys, which is a way that they were viewed at the time by other members of the public. Um Can you tell us a little bit about why they thought of them as those poor boys? Yes. When I finished writing Becoming Mrs. Lewis, I had such large swaths of research material that I couldn't put in the book. And it was killing me that I couldn't put it in the book. And part of that was interviews with Douglas. And that is where that podcast came from. The podcast is called Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis. And When I interviewed Douglas and he told me these stories of their life as young children and his life having a brother named Davy, who he says now he can reveal was schizophrenic and bipolar, he tells, Douglas tells very harrowing stories of his childhood living with Davy, but also beautiful stories of growing up in a house with a man like Lewis and his brother, Warney. And he talks about coming over on a ship when he was eight years old and learning an entire new life in another country. He talks about going to boarding school and how awful that was for him because he had an American accent and what that did for him and how that parallels the horrific boarding school experience that C.S. Lewis himself had as a young boy when his mother died when he was nine years old. So all of those stories can be brought out in a podcast because I can't put all of them in the book. Yeah. The way he talks about his brother is actually heartbreaking. And it's shocking to to realize that all of that was going on. And yet nothing was really whispered about it at the time that that I'm aware of anyway. So that this picture that was painted of Joy and C.S., Apart from the illness, having this kind of glorious life together at the Kilns, you realize that they also had this very disturbed young boy that was living with them as well. Yes. And there's one letter and 
I can't quote it directly because it's not in front of me, but there is one letter Lewis wrote to a mate, a friend, that said how charming Douglas was and how interesting he was. And he infers in that letter that Davy is very, very difficult. And I think there was just a lot of constraint around it at the time. You didn't talk about those things. And Davy didn't stay long. He went to boarding school and then he left England. I believe he left very soon after his mother passed away. And he went back to New York. And for a time, he lived with his uncle Howard. But it is Douglas who ended up staying and living with Jack and Warney and continuing his life in England. But if it is referred to at all, it is very subtle. But once you know and you read between the lines, in the let, there is one letter where Joy calls Davy a runaway atom bomb. So there are mentions of the difficulties, but never in depth until now. Yeah. Look, it's, it's, they've both got such an amazing output of work. I must admit to a little personal connection and that I was at an Anglican boarding school here in New Zealand. And we had a wonderful history and divinity teacher who was also the deputy principal. And the last year of our schooling, she gave us all, the leaving class, she gave us a copy of Joy Davidman's Smoke on the Mountain with a little wow. thing just so, so special. And I wanted to ask you, did you, do you have a favourite yourself personally amongst their output, uh, Joy's work and C.S. Lewis's? I see that, I heard Dirk Donald say that he thinks that his mother's best work was Smoke on the Mountain, but that might have been before he was really aware of the poetry. I don't know. What do you think? Yes, I think Douglas would definitely say, still, even with the poetry, he would he would claim Smoke on the Mountain. For me, it's her poetry. I, I think Smoke on the Mountain is an extraordinary piece of work, especially for the time that she wrote it, which was the late 40s and early 50s, being a woman and trying to write about theology as an ex-atheist in a world she didn't understand. One of the things that Lewis said when he wrote the intro for the UK version was that she brought a very unique perspective to the Ten Commandments, which is what Smoke on the Mountain is about, being of Jewish heritage. And so I think she brought a unique perspective in that book, not only being of Jewish heritage, but also being a woman in the 40s and 50s and trying to write about a subject matter that was in many ways off limits for someone like her. Yeah. But my favorite work of hers is definitely her poetry. There's, and probably my favorite poem of hers is a poem called Fairy Tale. And another favorite poem of mine of hers is Yet One More Spring. And both of those were written before her spiritual experiences, before her relationship with Lewis, and before she transformed and changed her life. And they both have this almost prophetic imagery in what was to come in her life. And I find that beautiful, that she was writing about things that she was starting to feel and think, and yet she didn't know what was coming. And I love both of those poems. Yeah. And what about Jack? What of, of his work would be your favorite? 
Wow. That is always such a hard answer because it depends. <laughs> I, bet, I bet it's hard for you to answer too, Jenny. Do you have a favorite? Yeah. No, I don't think I do really. <laughs> See, it's so hard. I would say there have mm. been favorites at different times in my life. I bet I'm, I'm wagering you would say the same. So for example, in my college years, I loved the screw tape letters and Pilgrim's Regress. Because both of those were full of imagery and allegory and metaphors that I could resonate with in college. As a child and now again as an adult, it's Narnia. I love Till We Have Faces because it is a retold myth and because I can see Joy's fingerprints in it. And A Grief Observed is one of the most powerful books on grief I've ever read. So I'm all over the place with a favorite for different reasons. Yeah, Look, you alluded to the fact that Joy had a tremendous influence on C.S. Lewis's later years as a writer. And I don't, that's something that's only very recently started to be acknowledged as more academic scholarship has been done. Now, he was famous, way, way famous before she even wrote him a letter. He'd been on the magazine cover of Time magazine, and I hadn't actually realised that he'd done broadcasts to the English public during the Second World War. So how on earth did a, a little woman from New York manage to have an impact on a man who was already a literary colossus in a sense? What did she bring to him? Oh, that is what drew me to the story in the first place, Jenny. That question right there. How was yeah. that even possible? And like you said, when Joy first wrote to him in 1950, he was famous, but not as famous as he is now, of course. He had been on the cover of Time magazine, and he had a few books in the world, but he did not yet have Narnia or Surprised by Joy or some of his more famous works. But she not only had started to read some of his work, but she had read an article about him in Atlantic magazine called Apostle to the Skeptics. And it was written by a man named Chad Walsh. And she was so fascinated by this deeply intelligent man who had once been an atheist, who had was now a quote, apostle to the skeptics. And she being, you know, a genius herself, wrote to him. And it is said in Warney's journal that Warney wrote in one of his journals that today we received a letter from the most fascinating American woman. I mean, how would you like someone to write in their journal because your letter was so interesting? And that was Joy Davidman and what I would give to see what that letter said. But it made a huge impact on both of them that it was enough, so he had to write it in his diary. So whatever she wrote to him captured him, and they continued with such deep intellectual back and forth for the next three years before they finally met face-to-face. -face. Yes, and the prelude to that letter, just to kind of help people understand who might not be aware of it, was that she herself had had some sort of religious conversion experience from a Jewish atheist to some level of belief, hadn't she? And she was querying Jack on that aspect of things, the sort of numinousness of it, I suppose to speak. Oh, you took the word out of my mouth. Numinous experience is how she would describe it too. Yes, she was alone at home with her two children who were babies. And her husband called to say he was not coming home and he was going to take his own life. 
And she was stranded in upstate New York without a car and not knowing where her husband had gone and believing that he might take his life because he had threatened it before. And actually, in the end, in 1962, he did take his own life. But in that moment, in the 40s, she didn't know what to do. And she found herself on her knees. And she was, as you said, an atheist and also very controversially, a communist. And she said when she fell on her knees that she had about 30 seconds of a very numinous and spiritual experience where she understood that she was not alone. And in her words, that life was too intense to forever be endured by logic alone. And that something or someone greater than herself was in that room with her. And from that moment on, that was not a conversion moment for her. What that was, was the impetus to set off on a journey of discovery to try and understand what that moment meant. And in trying to understand what that moment meant, she wrote to a man named C.S. Lewis. Yeah, um, it's amazing. It is. It's remarkable. Look, I think that's a great point to to switch our focus a little from the books because we think we've done really well. I hope people understand what fascinating books they are to get into, particularly at this Christmas season. But turn to you and your personal career. And the perennial question I like to ask every writer, is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that you would consider to be the secret of your success? Perseverance, Jenny, perseverance, the everydayness of it. It is the everydayness of it. I touch it every single day. Even if it's just a note I make or I do it first thing in the morning, I think about it in quiet moments. I was recently talking to an author pal of mine and she said, what do you think other people think about during the day? And it it was such a true question (laughs) because when there's a quiet moment, what are we thinking about? The plot, what to do next, what to write about next, what we're working on now, whether we got to the page that day. And, And so that's That's what I would say, perseverance. Fantastic. So how many books have you got published now? 16. Wow. Yeah, that is wonderful. We haven't had a chance to talk about some of those, but you've got a very good backlist there of contemporary romance and historicals. Yes. Look, turning to Patty as reader, this is the joys of binge reading. So we do like to hear a little bit about your reading taste probably more in the popular end for people who want a little bit of binge reading. What would you recommend? and What are you reading at the moment? I read such a wide array. Right now, I know I am late to the party, but I am reading Circe by Madeline Miller. And it is a retelling of, of Circe, the mythological yeah. you know, creature, yeah. Circe. And many people say that the White Witch is based on Circe. So I'm finding it really fascinating to read a retelling of that novel. I really loved a book this year called The Midnight Library. Oh, yes. Yeah. Have you, by Matt Haig? Amazing, an amazing novel. A contemporary of mine named Kristen Harmel has a brand new historical fiction that just enraptured me called The Forest of Vanishing Stars. And it is about the um, Jewish people in the 
in the ghetto who ran away and built an entire life in the forests of Poland to survive during World War II. And so I found that one fascinating. Yeah, they sound terrific. Circling round and looking back down the tunnel of time, because we are coming to the end of our time together. No! At this stage... It's so wonderful, but sadly we are. At this stage of your career, if you were doing it all over again, what would you change, if anything? What would I change, if anything? About the way that you've approached your career. Absolutely. I believe that I would like to sit down with myself of 18 years ago and tell her to be a little bit more patient and also to really dive into the definitions and the, I'm trying to find the right word, the the psychological underpinnings of story. I came to understand a lot of that over the last decade. And I think it really would have helped me in the beginning. Meaning, what are the archetypes? What are the character motivations? What what are we really thinking about when we're thinking about character development and the definition of story when it comes to how we impact the human brain? And the things I've learned over the past decade about that, I wish I could tell myself of 18 years ago. Fantastic. Have you used any particular research to get to that point? Oh, well, I love reading anything on the psychological studies of human nature from Jungian to, but there are a couple really good books about this. One is called The Anatomy of Story by John Truby. There is one called Story Genius. And both of those really dive into the psychological impacts of story on our brain. And I find that fascinating. Fantastic. Look, just a quick look forward then. What is next for Patty the writer? What are you working on now and what's coming up in the next 12 months for you? Wow. The next 12 months, I'm going to be working on a novel that I just started. And it is probably too tender and squishy to be able to describe yet. I feel like if I begin to try to describe what I'm working on, it will disappear like smoke. Sure. Well, can I just ask one question, contemporary or historical? Definitely historical. Okay, well, we look forward to that one. That's wonderful. Look, thank you so much, Patty. It's been wonderful talking, and I do so admire your work. Jenny, I love talking to you, and happy 200th, and thank you for talking about these books I love so much with me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening today. The best wishes of the season, no matter where you're listening from. And looking ahead to next week, Happy New Year too. Let's hope 2022 is a little kinder to us in the world, kinder than 2021 was. Next week, we've got another treat in store. Another holiday reading specialist, Karen Swan. Her winter stories, deep, complicated love stories set in evocative locations. Keep her on the top of the Sunday Times bestseller lists. Once again, ideal entertaining for holidays. Just the sort of books to curl up with on the beach or by the fireside. Look forward to joining you next week with Karen Swan. And in the meantime, thanks for joining us and happy reading.